Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. A couple of the happiest hours of the week are about to begin. It's time for God Talk or Guys Who Talk. And you know the drill. Send us questions. We'll do our very best to answer them biblically and let you know that uh, every question that we get, we uh, we take very seriously. So let me know what you have for us. 877-933-2484. Again, 877 933 2484. I'm so glad to have uh, as my power panel today, Jeff Verdorn, Dr. Greg Borgond, and Pastor Tom Parrish. That's the team today. Again, send your questions over 877-933-2484. All right, let me start with a general interest question. Uh, did you guys like An- uh, Andy Griffith? Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Can we start whistling it or not? You can if you like. <laughs> no, you can if you like. Hey, Barry RFD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's uh, something from one of the episodes. When Barney told Andy he should just let Opie decide for himself how he wanted to live, Andy had these words of wisdom. No, I'm afraid it won't work that way. You can't let a young'un decide for himself. (laughs) He'll grab at the first flashy thing with shiny ribbons on it. Then when he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. Wrong ideas come packaged with so much glitter but it's hard to convince him that other things might be better in the long run. All a parent can do is say, wait and trust me, and try to keep temptation away. Somehow, we've lost that basic truth. That's a great quote. Wow. TV used to be good. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, I actually it's, learned from it. It's, I've actually seen that clip recently. Have you really? Uh, it wasn't Barney who asked him that question. It was actually a stranger who wandered into town. I think it was actually Ben Clampett, you know, from uh, from that show. Oh, and, yeah. and he made a guest appearance. And that's who he was responding to. But don't you love the metaphor of he'll he'll be attracted to every shiny object like a hook that's in the water. And that's exactly the nature of man. And we all understand that. Andy Griffith <coughs> understood that. And if you're parenting well, you understand that as well. So I I remember when my kids were young, um, somebody told me once when I said uh, why, when my kid asked why, it's I answered them because they were five years old, because I told you so. And somebody said, kind of a distant relative of mine, that's not really how you should parent. And I had a long explanation. No, that's exactly how I'm going to parent. That's all they need to know right now Mm -hmm. is because I told them so, just like. When we look at Scripture and the doctrines and the truths and the exhortations in Scripture, the answer is, why do I need to do that, God? It's because God is saying, because God has told us so. Now, as they grew, I started giving them more choices and helping them understand how to make these decisions. But at the very beginning, all they needed to know is because I told you so. So many of the young adults that come to me for counseling, those in their 30s and 40s, all have the same basic story. That mom and dad never told them no. Mom and dad let them do whatever they wanted to do. Oftentimes, mom and dad weren't even around, and they were kind of on their own. And the devil loves that atmosphere. 
Because in that atmosphere, he can put all the shiny objects up there, and they all look so good in the beginning until the trap goes off. And the tragedy I've seen at my age are people I grew up with and I know who got into those things, got trapped by them, and for some of them, it literally took their lives. There are consequences, and we need to understand that, and our role as parents is the same role the Lord has for us with his word, to show us the right direction, and we need to be doing that. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, it, it, what stirred in my mind as you were sharing this whole idea how to apply situational leadership to parenting. For instance, um, when they're very young and they don't, they lack competence and confidence, um, they lack clarity about the consequences that they might endure making certain decisions. Then the parent is a director. They tell them, just as you suggested, exactly what needs to be done. And this is the way it's done. As they start to gain a little bit of confidence and some degree of competence, you move from being a director to a coach where you now explain why this is the right thing to do. And then when they continue to grow in maturity, you become, you stop being a sage on the stage and you start becoming a guy by the side and you partner with them. You're still responsible for the decision, but you're asking them, how would you decide? And then finally, uh, when they get to a point where they're mature enough and where you have to release them to the consequences of, of the society that they're growing up in, then you become a delegator or an advisor or a mentor. And so it's this progressive situational change in how you lead your family as a husband or a wife, but it starts off just do what I'm telling you to do. And then it's, here's why I've told you to do this. And then it's, here's how we can make a decision together and how would you do it. And then finally, now you have an opportunity to do it. My favorite quote, because I've been in sports all my life, is from Tom Landry, Dallas Cowboys. They said, you know, what's your role as a coach? He said, my role is to get these men to do things they don't want to do so they can become everything they want to be. And isn't that the truth for all of us? And now the most popular shows on TV are a bunch of young people living in New York in an apartment, and they're yes. all sleeping with each other, and, you know, that's what it's about, right? Mm. No. The lessons that uh, Barney Barney, and, uh, and Andy yeah. gave us over the years were wonderful. They were good. I don't know if this is actually from the show or if this is just a meme that somebody created, but it's a picture of Andy and Opie in it, and Opie saying, Pa, when is Jesus coming back? <laughs> and Andy goes, I don't rightly know, Ope. You see, we're not on the planning committee. We're on the welcoming committee. <laughs> <laughs> That's like great. That. That's that terrific. Great. That's good. Guy talk or guys who talk, let me know what questions you have for us. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. Gentlemen, did Jephthah really sacrifice his daughter? I'm looking at you, Dr. Greg Borgon. <laughs> Let me go to the passage first. Is that in second? Are you talking about um, when he released his daughter to? Uh, no, I think it's when uh, he made a deal that uh, if he wins a battle, uh, when he gets back home, he'll sacrifice oh, yeah, the yeah, first yeah, thing yeah, that yeah, comes yeah, out yeah. of his house. I'm assuming it's going to be an animal, right? He didn't expect his daughter to come out. And the question right. is, did he really sacrifice his daughter? Judges 11. Ju yeah, that's it. Yeah, there we go. 
So anybody who wants to jump in, go right ahead. Lots of pages are turning. A lot of (laughs) tension building here in the studio. Who's going to go first? I feel like the play-by-play guy. I'm looking at Jeff Verdorn, but now it looks like Dr. Greg Borgon and Tom Parrish is also... Looks like he might respond we're, as well. We're, we're diving sure in here first. And we might go to break here if, no, <laughs> if nobody talks. So the last time I was in this passage, which was a while ago, um, here's my note in my Bible that I found. And I now I, and I remember reading this and writing this, but it, it's been a few years now since I've been in Judges chapter 11, but... I have a note that said, sacrifice his daughter to service, not to death. Greg? So you got the passage up? Sacrificed his daughter to service, not yeah, yeah, that's to right. death. That's right. All right, I've got the passage here, beginning with, uh, let's see, verse 1 in, in chapter 11. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our house. So all of a sudden he gets brought back into leadership again as you move down through the passage. And verse 7, but Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? So he has some baggage with him. Um, and then we actually get over to, let's see, the verse that, that addresses this in 11. Uh, help me out with this, Jeff. Exactly. In 11. Tragic vow. Here it is. Verse yep. 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand... Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites, fight against them, and so forth, and then he struck them from air uh, neighborhood to Minnith. And, and, and then Jephthah came to his home after he won the battle, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. and You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now the Lord had avenged you to your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, and so forth. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed. She and her companions and wept for virginity in the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to his father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in in Israel, and that daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah. So we don't have an indication in that passage that he actually sacrificed her it may have been that she was released for two months and then she came back we don't know what happened so i i don't think we can extrapolate from that that he actually sacrificed her physically sacrificed her 
We'll leave it at that. Nicely done, gentlemen. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots of guide talk today. Let me know what questions you have. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Can't wait to get your question. Be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. All right, we started off with a tough question. You guys did well. But that is a, that's a tricky one out of judges on Jephthah. But nicely handled. All right, here's another question that's just come in. How do you strike a balance between surrendering and trusting God with something and being the persistent widow who continues to ask God to act? How do you strike a balance between surrendering and trusting God with something and being the persistent widow who continues to ask God to act? What I like about this this question, and it's a great question, is that on the one hand, the persistent widow, Jesus taught that, you know, your heavenly father is more anxious to answer you than, you know, the judge simply did it because you got it worn out. But what we have here is this. You and I are to continue to surrender to Jesus and trust his judgment every day, whether it fits with our judgment or not. But on top of that, if we don't have a definitive answer from the Lord one way or the other, there's nothing wrong with continuing to ask. Because Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane three times that this cup be removed from him. But once he came to the conclusion, and I knew he would, you know, we know he would, came to the conclusion, this is what had to be done. He simply submitted to it and did it. So I think the model is there. Yes, we continue to take it to the Lord, but we trust the answer will ultimately come from the Lord, whether we see it or not. There's a comment that is often a refrain uh, in prayer. Uh, not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. But that doesn't stop you from asking. And ask whatever you will, he says, and it will be done to you if you're a follower of Christ. But the idea is is that you can ask, but you also surrender to God's better judgment. Is that what you're getting to, Bill? God's better judgment, uh, some dynamic that we're not even aware of because God is not bound by time, past, present, or future. He may see things that we cannot see, so we need to trust him, but it doesn't stop us from asking until a final conclusion is reached. Yep, exactly. I'm going to—I actually do not see any need for balancing the surrendering unto God and a persistent—even a persistent uh, uh, asking 
God for for certain things. I, I don't think there's a balance there. Like these are two ends of the spectrum that you need to balance with each other. I think the core of walking by faith is trusting God. That is, if you trust in him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, uh, Proverbs says, he will direct your path. As we abide in him and trust in him, uh, as Greg, as you just said, not my will, but your will be done, um, you can still be trusting in the will of God and trusting that he knows tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow holds. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what tomorrow holds, but I trust in the one who does hold tomorrow in his hands, and that's the Lord. So... I can, I have, there's prayers I've asked God, Paul asked God three times to take the thorn out of his flesh, and it seems like he gave up and learned a lesson, and that was it. I've had, there's some prayers I've asked God 30 times, maybe 300 times for certain things, sure. but I'm still trusting in him through the process. You know, I, Chris, uh, our family uh, some years ago went through a very, very difficult time. And consequently, for a two-year process, we were constantly under siege. And I remember laying across the ottoman in our living room, praying every single day for God to resolve this issue. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, but, but trusting him, and, and I, I memorized actually Psalm 13, which was David's psalm where he pled before the Lord, how long will you not respond to me? And then ultimately he shows his trust in God. So I kept using that prayer or that psalm as a prayer and two years later, finally God gave an answer, but it wasn't anything I imagined he was going to do. But it didn't stop me from asking him. And it taught me a great deal about faith and trust because I was going to rely on the wisdom of God, yet there was anguish in my soul while I was going through it, tears that were being shed and pleading with God to resolve it. And um, But I trusted him that the outcome... Um, may not be as I defined it, but it would be an outcome that was under his will, and I would submit to that. I've had people show up in my church and come to me for counseling and say, you know, my brother grew up in this church, but he hasn't been here in 20 years. He kicks the junkyard dog. He's in his third marriage. He says there is no God because, you know, his first wife died. And I have been praying every day for his salvation. Should I give up praying? And the answer is simply, well, of course not. Because the Word of God says it is as well that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So you already know the outcome of his will. Praying every day is what we're to be doing as much as we can. But the Lord will act in his own timing. And here's the hard part. Your brother still has free will. And I, I hate that sometimes, but that's the way it works. But I would say keep praying, never give up, keep asking, and the Lord will provide the answer when he wants to. Yeah, and the Scripture says pray without ceasing. Yeah. I like that. Thank you, Tom Parrish. Thank you, Dr. Greg Borgon and Jeff Verdorn. Another question, gentlemen, open up First Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. So First Timothy 1, verse 4. The question is, First Timothy 1, 4 admonishes us to shun genealogies. How does that square with the many genealogies in the Old Testament and the importance placed on those who show Jesus's lineage? Oh, another one I haven't looked at for a while, but I I remember looking at this a number of years ago, 
And it's not a prohibition against understanding your genealogy. We actually see two very important genealogies in the New Testament and many actually in the Old Testament of the lineage of people. Uh, So we have one in Matthew uh, of the genealogy of Christ and another one in Luke about the genealogy of Christ. By the way, those were very important genealogies because it proved the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Judah and from the house of David, right? So those genealogies were ultimately important to prove that Jesus was the one that God said was going to come upon the world. I think what this is a reference to, if I recall, is putting an importance on the genealogy to set some people above other people in a way that it was uh, and or a a mystical aspect of it that says if you're a descendant of so-and-so, you somehow have more spirituality or more power or something like that for us. So do you guys does that Mm -hmm. ring a bell to you guys? Yeah. What I find interesting about this passage or this this verse, it ties very closely myths and endless genealogies. Yeah. So, miss um, in the New Testament, it's it's a negative term of characterizing beliefs as fanciful or untrue, or even deceptive. And as one scholar had put it, he said such myths were often used to excuse immoral behavior, with a latter reference to the misuse of the law. So, it's the abuse of gene- genealogies and maybe the hierarchy that we place in it, the priority we place in it, or referring to it to. Um, justify some decision we're about to make um, that is not uh, necessarily of the Lord. So it's the misuse of them, I think. I had a leadership meeting at my church, and it you know it fits right in with this, because some of the leaders there said, you know, we, we just don't speak up as quickly as we should in difficult circumstances because we're Scandinavians. Scandinavians yeah. are, are more reticent. And this is getting into this, like this genealogy thing. Quit using that as an excuse to not be who you're supposed to be in Jesus Christ. Now, are some of us going to be more articulate than others? Probably. But that's not the issue. The issue is you don't use your heritage or your past or what your mom or dad did to determine what you're going to do now if it isn't what the Lord wants you to do. Yeah, exactly. Nicely done, gentlemen. All right. Uh, I don't know if we've got time to launch into another question. We've got two minutes here. and. I can't. I can't wind you guys up with two minutes. That's not fair. That's not fair. Well, there, maybe there'll be a part one and a part two to the answer. Yeah, that's true as well. Uh, but there's great questions coming in, and, and we've got lots of time today for your questions. So send them over eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Let's give you that one more time eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Maybe it's a question that you've had for a long time and you have not wanted to ask your own pastor. Uh, you can ask these guys, and they'll answer to the best of their ability. They all have their Bibles open, and they're ready to go. So Jeff Ferdorn, uh, Greg Borgon, and Tom Parrish are my power panel today. So we've got uh, lots of time for your questions. So thank you for sending it over. And I don't know if you've downloaded the app yet for Faith Radio, because it's a really nice app. And check it out. You can text the word app to 877 933 2484. We can send you a link, make it really easy to download to your smartphone. Check it out. And if you don't like it, you can always take it off. But I think you're going to like it. All right, we'll take a break and we'll be right back with lots more God Talk.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Prime time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. It is time for Guy Talk or Guys. Who talk? Let me know what questions you have. 877-933-2484. I have Jeff, Greg, Tom. They're all sitting here. Bible's open. We're ready to go. Send us your questions. We'd love to try our very best to answer them. All right. Let's see. Uh, what do you think the two biggest issues facing the church today? For me, as a pastor, it's really identity and purpose. People don't know who they are in Jesus Christ that they are the ambassadors of the gospel, and they really don't know their purpose, that they are not there simply to come to worship settings and enjoy good music and to give money, but to literally be the voice of Jesus, his hands and feet in the world, and go out in that world and make disciples. Yeah, for, for me, I think one of the, the biggest problems um, for churches, evangelical churches in particular, um, there's not really a systematic approach to discipleship for Christ followers that gives them the fundamental foundations necessary uh, to live a godly life and to walk them through that whole process and maybe relegated to a Sunday school class or a special class that you're teaching. Um, but the idea is, is that many sermons today are needs-based sermons rather than expositions of Scripture and taking into consideration the whole counsel of God. Yeah. And so what we're getting from that, and in and, and many respects, and I'm not against needs base. I mean, Christ is here to, to resolve our needs as well. But the idea is, is that um, it gives you too much of a surface approach that's based on a need that you might experience at the moment rather than the foundation that you'll stand on when faced with that need. So discipleship to me, or the lack thereof in churches, I think is one of the biggest problems that we deal with, face. Yeah, I think the there are so many marginal churches that have decided that, um, you know, they know more than God knows. And as you were just describing the foundation, I think that foundation has to be the Word of God. And, you know, a man who builds his house upon the the foundations of the word of god when the storms come and the rain comes he will not be uh he will be able to stand he won't be washed away um i think so many churches today have built their house upon shifting sands and because they are not based on the word of god there is a kind of a famous um a televised pastor who starts every service with you know it's on this book that we make our stand and we whatever whatever and he has this creed but then he spends the next half hour and never mentions one word from that book that he says that he's standing on right if if you are not going to to see god's word as the word of god from god inspired by god well then you're going to come up with all kinds of notions about man about sexuality, about marriage, about sin, and what is sin and what isn't sin, um, you're going you're gonna to be off on all kinds of things. So we have to go to the Word of God. The other big area is, Tom, I really like the identity thing because I think Christians don't know our identity. There was a, a great movie by the Kendrick brothers. The Kendrick brothers have made a number of Christian-themed movies. One of them was called Overcomers, and it was about a, a young black girl who was a track star, I believe, 
and was struggling. I can't remember the, the theme. But at one point in the movie, the coach, who was one of the Kendrick brothers, gives her Ephesians 1 and says, go through Ephesians 1 and, and mark, highlight all of the things that God says you are. And she goes through, and it's a very powerful scene. The, the words come up on the screen, and there's a highlighter up on the screen that basically highlights each of these words. And she starts understanding who God says she is in Christ. Every church should do that. Every youth group should do that. Every adult group should do that. We should do it with the shut-ins because, again, the devil is continually robbing us of who we are, and therefore we don't have any power. And the goal of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of who we are and empower us to do it. So I love that. That's a great Ephesians 1. I love that. Well, it's against the backdrop of what's happening in our society today uh, where perspectivism is the word that um, frames it. And what that it what that really means is, is that you conclude there is no absolute truth. That truth is only experienced through your own experience. And if you buy into that and that there is no absolute truth, then you're going to be subject to relativism, to living your life situationally, depending on how you feel. And I think, Jeff, your point is absolutely critical, that we have to bring people back to an understanding there is absolute truth. That Mm -hmm. absolute truth is in the Word of God that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierced in the vision of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and discerned of thoughts and tents of your heart, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that a man or woman of God is equipped for every good work. And unless you understand that God did give us a manual to live life, it's called the Bible, which represents his absolute truth. And if you buy into this this idea in our society that there is no absolute truth, then you're going to be lost in the waves of discord and incongruence the rest of your life. And so I'm just advocating for, as you suggested, the importance of establishing the Bible as the Word of God as your primary foundation to navigate life. There's 8 billion people in this world. They all have an opinion, and I think half of them have podcasts. <laughs> um, but you know what? You know what? Whose opinion I'm most interested in? And that's God's. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen. I am trying to tell a non-believer about Jesus. His question for me is, how do I know Jesus is real and what I'm telling him about Jesus is really the truth? What is a good response to this question? You know, you were just, right before the show, we were talking about a book that was written a while ago. It's been updated recently, uh, entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Um, it's a very difficult read. It reads more like a textbook than anything else, but it has all of the uh, lists, multiple uh, um, lines of evidences for the life, ministry, teaching, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, some historians have said it's one of the most documented uh, events in antiquity. In other words, we're more sure that there was a person named Jesus who lived and died and rose again than just about any other v- event in that era, right? Um, but one of the primary ways we have of knowing that is through the Word of God. We were just talking about the Word of God. Um, and so then the question then becomes, well, how do I trust the Word of God? 
And this is another multifaceted kind of discussion on 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 showing that the Word of God is reliable historically. Um, but even more, I, I like to point out one commentator said that fulfilled prophecy is like God's fingerprints on the Bible. When we see prophecies in Scripture about people, places, events, kings, kingdoms, whatever, and they come to pass exactly how the prophet says, we then can gain confidence that we can trust the Word of God as God's Word. Because who else knows the future except for God? I mean, you, you end up starting with, as you suggested, Jeff, by establishing that he was an historical person that lived in a very a specific time, and then to identify it by citing some of the proofs, which can be, you know, you can go into evidence that demands a verdict, and there'll be lots of that there. But once you establish the historicity of Jesus Christ, then the next question I would encourage you to ask is, all right, let's, talk, let's look at and see what he said about himself and why he came. And allow Jesus to justify his own existence by his own words. Once you establish that he was a historical figure and that he did make comments about himself, what are you going to do with those comments? I think that's the best way to start an answer to that question. Establish the historicity of Jesus and then zero in on what did he say about who he was and why he was here. And then finally, now, Given those two facts, what are you going to do with it? I love to challenge people, you know, because people can they say, well, that's that's history, you know, and, and I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, come on. But what I love to do, and especially when I get to talk to people that are what they would call agnostics or others, I, I challenge them. Okay, and I usually use the Gospel of John, but the, kind of the way I do it, I say, okay, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If there's no God, you have nothing to lose. There's no absolute truth. You have absolutely nothing to lose. Can't be hurt by it. Can't make a mistake. It's not going to hurt you. Would you agree with that? And they usually say yes. Then I say, okay, what I'm going to ask you to do is start reading John. Read one chapter each day. And every time you read it, say out loud, I don't believe you exist. I don't believe you're there, Jesus. But if I might be a little bit wrong, please help me to discover the truth. I can honestly tell you, I've had a number of men who have done that. And usually they were in a crisis. Their marriage is falling apart, their business. They were in a crisis, so they were willing to try it. And most of them can't get to chapter 10 without getting on their knees and crying out and saying, Jesus, help me. I really need you. So it is both the historical information, and I love evidence that demands a verdict. I've got that, every copy. I've read it through. I encourage that. But there is the experiential, because the Bible says, you know, when you search with me, with for me with all your heart, what does it say? You will find me. And searching is not just the intellectual. It's putting yourself on the line and saying, here I am. You know, get a hold of me. You know, smack me upside of the head. Teach me what you have to so that I know you're there. And I've seen that happen. The other thing I would sh- share with the, the listener who asked the question is it's not all about you <laughs> and whether or not you can prove that God exists. Because in any conversation, you and another individual, there's always a third party. He's called the Holy Spirit. And his function and his role, one of his many functions and role, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So he's the one that brings upon the conviction. So it's not just up to you. You're just the conduit. 
And you need to understand that the you're not bringing anyone to salvation. It's God through the work of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Christ on the cross that brings salvation. Yep. Good word. All right. Um, what are the people who have died in Christ? What are they doing? If they died in Christ, are they, are they just hanging out up there? Are they doing something specific? And how about those who have died and are not saved? Are they in hell? Have they already been judged by Christ? Where are they? So we know biblically, Paul says after the cross, so after the Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world, all those who are in faith, all those who have trusted in him, all of those who are born again are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord when they die. So Paul says, absent from the body, at home with the Lord, he says, it's better for me to depart and be with the Lord by far. He knows it's a much better place than this world. Uh, By the way, Paul had an inordinate amount of persecution and suffering in this world as a believer in Christ Jesus. And uh, so it is going to be better by far. We really have no passages that describe what believers are doing in the presence of the Lord up in heaven. Uh, So about all we have is that it's going to be much better. Uh, Paul writes in Corinthians, no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the wonders God has in store for us. So I can promise every believer in Christ Jesus it's better than this world. On the opposite side, the unrighteous are in a place called Hades. In the torment side of Hades, where many of the parables of Matthew describe it as where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you don't want to go there. How do you avoid going to Hades, uh, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him for your eternal salvation. Yeah, there, there's no such thing in, in as soul sleep. That's that's kind of what we're talking about here, that I die in Christ and then I go to sleep until he appears again or we the millennial hap, millennium happens. But it's, you're exactly right, Jeff. I mean, you go to be directly with the Lord. Your soul, the, the substance, the core substance of who you are, uh, everything uh, that makes you you is what resides now with Christ. What's happening in that that environment or that sphere in heaven ab- uh, above us? Because it, it isn't until much later that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth that we're going to be physically have a resurrected body and be able to live in that new heaven and new earth. So in the meantime, we don't know. And there's probably a good reason. I mean, if we were told exactly what was going to happen, we all be clamoring to get there. <laughs> and, and so instead of being any earthly good, we would be so heavenly minded, we'd be of absolutely no earthly and good. And he has a mission for us right yeah, now, right absolutely. here. Absolutely. When you guys fell in love with your wives, those first couple of months, especially, which are magical for most people, they're just so incredible. You didn't really care where you went. You didn't really care what you did. You didn't care what movie you went and saw. You just wanted to be with her. That never ends in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says, they will know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, it is the relationship that's of the critical importance. It's not what we do. It's who we're with. And being in his presence is like that first couple of days after you fall in love. It never goes away. Because it's perfection. Yeah, Scripture says that now we see darkly, then we'll see clearly. So, I mean, you can speculate from that and think that, oh, when I die and my soul goes to be with Christ, I'm no longer encumbered by a lack of understanding or knowledge of what I'm experiencing with him. 
And even though I don't have all the answers, because the only one that's infinite is God, and I'm a finite person, Mm -hmm. but still, all of a sudden, I'm going to have the ability to understand things in a way that I never did before. So I don't know if that progressive learning is going to continue on, or what's actually going to be happening in that in-between time, but I'm kind of excited to get there and find out. (laughs) I remember one commentator said, the Bible is infinite, and we'll spend eternity studying the nuances of it. I love (laughs) it. All right, we'll take a break. More Guy Talk ahead. Let me know what you have for us. Power Panel is chomping at the bit for your question. I'm talking your question, and you know who you are, so send it over. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Hey, Faith Radio is celebrating 75 years of bringing faith to life. That's right. We are 75 this year. So to celebrate, we are giving away 75 Faith Radio birthday boxes packed with all kinds of fun things to help you grow in your walk of faith. And yes, celebrate with us. So we're going to be celebrating the birth and growth and future of Faith Radio all year long. And you are an integral part of the Faith Radio family, and so we want to send you a gift. How fun is that? This is our birthday song. It isn't very long. So to enter to win a Faith Radio birthday box today, come to MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have my power panel sitting here to my left. Tom Parrish, Greg Borgon, and Jeff Verdorn. Great questions coming in. Thank you so much. I don't know if you gentlemen know this, but there's a growing field of research, uh, collective uh, neuroscience, that says that human brain waves synchronize when we interact with each other. Our, our neurons fire at the same time and in corresponding patterns. So in other words, uh, sometimes when we get together, we're almost creating a single kind of uber brain. Uh, So how important it is to get together and have fellowship. Have you ever had one of those moments where uh, you had the same idea as a friend about what to eat for dinner or you you concluded a, a brainstorming session at work and you said, we must be on the same wavelength? I think there's more to this than we realize. Because the formation of the church, I mean, if if... It's just simply our relationship with Jesus, and that we're, when we die, we're going to have eternal life. Why do I need you guys? Why do I need to be around you guys? The reality is the church is the place where I do think there is a synchronization of spiritual beliefs, growth, understanding, correction, you know, all of those things. And honestly, I've been doing this for a number of years, and for me, what I look so forward to on these Thursdays is not only that I get to share, which is fun— I get to learn. I learn from you guys. And and I'm 73 years old, and I'm still growing in my faith, and I'm still learning. And then I steal everything I can and take it back to my church and teach people. So it's great stuff. You know, Leonard Sweet um, one time wrote a book called uh, Tsunami, Spiritual Tsunami, and, and, and a couple of other books. But he talked about the fact that we are more than what our physical substance indicates we are. 
He says it's almost like that each of us have a magnetic field around us that can be sensed by others. And he gave several examples, and we can probably experience them ourselves. Like, for instance, when a baby, uh, when you bring them over to a friend's home and they're agitated, it isn't because necessarily they're, they're hungry or they need milk. They sense something because there's no defense mechanism to stop them from sensing the dynamics of what's happening around them. They can feel that it's either dangerous or it's, it's not a safe place. They can't use those words, but they respond to it. And the same thing with us. We're talking to each other, and sometimes we complete each other's sentences. Yeah. Or we talk just about the same restaurant without even saying the words. So there's something going on there. I don't quite know what it is. Maybe it's in this research that we'll find out. But there's something to it, and I just haven't got a handle on it yet. So materialism, which is probably the worldview that's uh, most common with the scientific world, will say there's only the material. And that if you can't see it or taste it or touch it, then it really doesn't exist. There's no spiritual reality, in other words. I think there's so much body of evidence from many different fields that points to the this idea that there's an immaterial part of man uh, as well as just the material. In other words, we cannot explain individuals' personalities just by kind of a uh, an organism stimulation and response organism that's going on. We have emotions and feelings and we've, we can be creative and we love. There's absolutely an immaterial part of man. And scripture actually says that we are made body, our physical body, our soul. In the Greek, it's suke, where we get the word psychology. So our mind, our will, our emotions, our memories, things that make us us is our soul. And then the spiritual part of us and the spirit is that part that we can have a relationship with God who is spirit. So when you're born again, your spirit has been made alive in Christ. So there is clearly an immaterial part of man. So that's why in the last session, uh, the segment we just said, Paul said, I'm absent from the body, the physical body, but who he was or who he was when he was with the Lord was with the Lord, the immaterial part of him. And that's the soul. If that somehow is able to interact on a level that we don't know, I I would never say that's not possible. Well, I mean, Kevin, haven't we all experienced walking into an unfamiliar environment and just sensing something's wrong? Yes. Or walking into somebody's home and feeling a sense of safety and security. Um, where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, is it conjured up or, or some dynamic, some interchange going on with, with the environment? I, I don't know the total answer to that. I was hoping you would. <laughs> there's a, there, in Acts, there's a, a passage where it says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to put any more burden on you beyond the certain requirements that they were doing. And it's kind of like this idea that... We have the Spirit of God who speaks to us and leads us. And if you also have the same Spirit, and you have the same Spirit, and you have the same Spirit, well, we should be united, and we should be like-minded if we're all listening to that same Spirit. Connected like, like a spiritual hive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, gentlemen, I know there's pros and cons of reading the Bible in chronological order. We, we don't really do that, do we? read it in chronological order. We just read it in the order that we have it. Um, 
Well, it depends who you who you are, but the Bible is not in chronological order. But when I've read through the Bible, I will often like uh, Kings and Chronicles, and then you have the kind of the prophets, Isaiah and so on, that go along with some of the events that are listed in Kings of Chronicles. I will often uh, I have flipped back and forth between them, and so. When it's talking about, you know, in, in a historical book like Kings and Chronicles about the prophet that uh, does this, I will go to that prophet and read that section. Nice. I like. All right. When you take a look at the, the way in which the Bible is structured, it's, it's, it's structured by genre, yes. really. I mean, you have the narrative portions, you have the, the, the poetic portions, you have the um, major prophets and the minor prophets. And so that's why it's not in chronological order. But there are chronological Bibles that have taken the the passages in the books and put them in chronological order. Sometimes within a book, like for instance, First and Second Samuel, everything's in a chronological order. Same thing with Kings, but that's not always the case. So it's more by genre than it is by chronology. You're right. Yeah. Nicely done, gentlemen. Can you believe this? We're already at the conclusion of hour one of God wow. Talk. But the good news is we have hour two just ahead, which means there's still lots of time for your questions. So send them over, please. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Jeff, you had mentioned the movie Overcomer, the Kendrick Brothers movie. Mm -hmm. A listener said um, the teenage girl had asthma and runs cross country. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So isn't that nice? All right. I want to say a big special thanks to my power panel today, Jeff Ferdorn, Greg Borgon, and Tom Parrish. They're not going anywhere, and I have not said anything about pizza yet today because they're not. <laughs> We're learning. Yeah, you guys aren't getting any. That's just reality. So send the questions over, and I'm looking forward to spending more time with you. Uh, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.